0: Well, it's time to open our Bibles. Matthew chapter 5 is where we find ourselves again in the Sermon on the Mount. And I'm going to read the passage up front, and I'm going to tell you that as we approach the text, I'm going to take it in two ways. I'm going to approach it in terms of the forest or the big picture, so the full weight and impact of what's there hits you, because I think that's the way it's supposed to be read and applied. And then I'll uh, shift gears and do as I usually do, which is I'll look at some of the trees. So we're going to go forest and then trees. But we don't want to miss the forest for the trees in a message or a message from Christ like this one. And so um, let me read the text Matthew chapter 5. It's on the topic of um, lustful intent. Verse 27 You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. Then that your whole body go into hell. Uh, This is a passage that's speaking of a prevalent sin in the hearts of men and women. And these are what have been called secret sins. Secret sins are the deadliest sins. Secret sins, meaning sins that never come to light in terms of repentance, are the costliest sins sins. I'm taking this in an efficient way. I'm just going to go right into the text, what it says and what it means. But I'm doing that not because this is unimportant. It is very important. Not because lust doesn't affect many people because it does. Not because lust is unpowerful because it is. Not because lust doesn't ruin lives because left unrepented of, it will it will so i'm going in the spirit that jesus goes in here so we don't drain the text power we need to just see it for what is there and when you look at this passage and see the warning that it's adultery that is committed by the heart through lustful intent, that which nobody is seeing or observing or knows about is happening all the time, and that by this happening and by this violation, what happens is people go to hell. It's a serious text, and it's something that we need to look at, and we need to ask this question, and perhaps you're already asking this question. If this is a sin that's so pervasive and so indicting, then how can you stop something like that? Something that's this powerful, something that's like a freight train that's headed down the tracks where the tracks are out and the cliff is coming and you're heading headlong over the cliff down into the abyss. Something with a warning this big where Jesus says, I'm gonna, if you don't repent of this, if you don't stop this sin, the sin of lustful intent, then I'm gonna throw you headlong into eternal hell should be asking yourself, how do I stop? What is powerful enough to stop a sin that's this pervasive and this powerful? Jesus gives the answer twice in verses 29 and 30. Once in 29, once in 30. The brake pedal that Jesus uses to apply stopping lustful intent is simply summed in the word hell. The warning of hell is the brake pedal that Jesus tells you, you must apply to deal with the sin. That's this powerful. So hell is equally powerful against a sin that is so powerfully pervasive that goes on in the heart all the time. Lust is the world's salesmen right everything is latent and and just just filled with temptation and allurement for people to be consumed by this sin but really the agenda of the world is money they want to sell and they want people to consume lust and so they know people will pay for it one way or the other so they sell everything in view of lust in view of what is going on in the hearts of people the only way to stop is to do what John Piper called, which is repentance that looks like radical amputation. Now, obviously, when Jesus says, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out, he's not talking physically rip your eye out. There's a lot of blind people or people with impaired vision that have the exact same heart issues that you do, right? So physical amputation or physical ripping away of body parts or organs is not what's going to solve this. But the idea of a violent, radical rerouting of your life in the name of heart repentance is what's called for. Repenting where you're willing to say, no, I will not look that way. I will not look that direction. I will not talk to that person. I will not go there. I will not touch this. I will not handle that. I'm going to redirect my actions, but a repentance that's not action first, but dealing with the heart first that then creates the correct response. That's what we're talking about. What does it take to do that? What does it take to turn off lust? It's the warning that if you don't, you're going to hell. That's what Jesus is saying. This is the forest. This is what's going on. There's not just physical adultery. There's something on a deeper level that's happening in the hearts all the time that is lusting for people all the time. It takes the warning of hell, which is the brake pedal, to stop someone from doing that and to not only act as a brake pedal, but also an acceleration gas pedal where you say, I'm willing to rip the eye out or cut the arm off for the sake of my own soul safety. That's the point. That's what's going on. We can go home now. No, just kidding. So it is a dangerous thing. We either slam on the brakes or we will be flung into hell. Our zombified culture is trying to dumb this thing down, right? Everybody's walking around going, well, lusting is just involuntary. It's happening all the time. So why are we even talking about it? One of the very sobering things that we need to think about in our own lives as christians who have the holy spirit and the power of god to actually not sin in this way is we need to look at the rest of the world in pity and say there's a lot of people who are filled with lust who are grazing on the sins of of the morsels that are around there all the time and that means that most everyone is lusting and most everyone is not repenting and most everyone is going to hell and so we have to understand that there's a lost culture that's given over to this sin and that a lot of people are going to hell because of it. Accepting the sin of lust as normal is to basically ignore the fact that it violates God's holiness, right? It's, it, it pulls apart the fabric of our country because it's upending the commitment of marriage, it's upending the commitment of love and loving one another, which is defined biblically as self-sacrificial giving and loving in terms of friendship and relationship and not taking and destroying. We have to deal with this on a biblical level because people are unwilling to hit the brakes and people are at risk of going to hell. Gone are the days where talking about lust is taboo in our culture. People used to say, you know, I'm not going to talk about it. I'm not going to go there. This is the culture of the open marriage. This is the culture where husbands and wives will joke around cavalierly with each other in terms of who they are attracted to or not. What actor or actress, what icon they like can think about an undignified culture and so there's also the self-justification of saying i would never do that i would never commit adultery i would never violate my marriage when in fact the violation is already happening the most sobering word out of this whole text is that it's happened already it's happened already Jesus has already read your cell phone. He's read your email. He's viewed what you have viewed online. He's called you out. He knows what's happening on the inside. It's happened already. Not just the men, but also the women. This is scenarioed as a man lusting for a woman, but it's anyone and it's hearts. So this is by implication for everyone, young Old, married, single, male, female. This is a pervasive sin that needs to be dealt with severely, with severity and with the severity of honesty. To say, I have to deal with something on the inside, even if I'm filled with the pride that thinks I would never do something on the outside. So Jesus is targeting the heart with eternity in view. Let me just really get in your grill. This is going to sound a little bit offensive, especially if you have experienced the fallout of adultery, physical adultery. Someone who commits, like is married, and commits physical adultery, okay? They, they cross the line, they violate the marriage, they break the marriage covenant, who then does not or, or who then sees their sin? They, you know, they've they've had tension um, injected in their marriage, in their um, relationships to their kids, and all that. But they see the error of their ways. They're convicted by the Holy Spirit. They're smitten in their hearts, and they repent of that sin and say, "God, forgive me. Be merciful to me, a sinner. Whatever the fallout of what I've done, I will accept as uh, consequences." As part of my repentance, someone who genuinely seeks and finds the grace of Christ in their lifetime is immeasurably better off than someone who lives in the secret thoughts of his own lusts and wants someone else and never acts upon it, but never repents. Do you see physical adultery that's repented of puts a person in a far better position than someone who's unrepentant, who's carrying on in secrecy Within their own heart. That's the person that Jesus calls out here in this text. That's the person who's in jeopardy, someone who's unwilling to repent of secret, lustful intent. Practically speaking, someone who commits adultery, who loses their spouse, even access to their own children, and genuinely seeks and receives forgiveness through the grace of Christ is immeasurably better off than someone who commits adultery in secret, in the secrecy of his or her heart, and genuinely never seeks and receives the forgiveness that comes through the grace of Christ. And the reason for that is when someone lives in the secrecy of their own sins— and never repents, it's revealing, it's telling us something about that person. That person is not truly born again. That person is going to hell because they never repented. Repentance, repenting of sins like these, is actually the fruit, and it's the proof that you are genuinely a Christian. So, we we overcomplicate things sometimes. To our own detriment, hell is real. Hell is forever. Hell means torture. And it's the whole body. You see that phrase in verse 29? The whole body. The physical resurrected body going to hell, burning forever. That's the warning that applies the brakes on a sin like this. What is Jesus' brake pedal to stop lustful intent? The warning and threat of real hell. How does this work? Who a kid, who would admit as a kid you touched a burner coil on your mother's stove? Okay, I'm the only one. I did it. I did it. I touched an iron. I touched a burner coil. My mom's probably live streaming in. Yes, I did that. And it's no reflection on her. However, however, I do stuff like that. I touched, a, I think, a grill one time. I'm not sure. By accident. But when you touch something like that, especially as a little kid, there are messages that are immediately encoded into your frontal lobe. Don't do that again because it really, really hurts. It's blinding pain, right? And The idea that if your hand was stuck on that hot burner, that would be really, really bad and horrifying pain would surge through your body from doing that. What's worse, your hand, if someone kept it there, it would ultimately melt the skin away and destroy your hand and jeopardize your life. You perhaps would become sepsis and die because of an event like that. This is what this text is to us. This is the, the, the burner or the, you know, the, the, this is Jesus' like hot stove event for us to work through. Hell is real. Hell is forever. People who do not repent of what's going on inside in this lifetime are in jeopardy of being thrown by Jesus, thrown into hell forever. That's the picture of this Text. It's Jesus' hot stove sermon. So this is the big idea um, of the text. This is the forest. Don't do that. It's if you're doing that, you need to stop because it's revealing that you're not really a Christian and you're in jeopardy of hell. And hell is the reason that we stop. And stopping looks like radical spiritual amputation. That's the text. That's what this is. Now, let's move from the forest into some trees. We're going to go from the big picture to some, some finer points of nutrition. And I want to introduce this section of the sermon in this way with this question. If you know you're a Christian, and we all believe we are Christians, right? That's why we're here. And we know that Christians don't go to hell, then how does this brake pedal help me? <laughs> right? I know I'm a Christian. I'm not supposed to doubt that. So how do we apply a brake pedal? Like this, the warning of hell that doesn't apply to me is no warning at all. It's like the brakes are out. Well, let's squeeze in some brake fluid into our car this morning by looking at the text a little bit more careful. Because this text is ultimately saying that Jesus is Lord over two very important areas of our lives. And they go together. The first is this, Jesus is Lord over our imagination. He's the only one who can be. Jesus has x-ray vision into our hearts, into our minds, and into our motives. Like I said before, it's as if he reads the email and text messages of our own hearts. He's got the search And knows the search history of our own souls. He knows why we're going, where we're going, and what we're doing, and what we're thinking about all the time. Jesus is Lord over your imagination. He's over your scenario build that goes on in your mind. Jesus is Lord over that. Submitting to his lordship in that way is part of applying the brakes on this kind of sin, on this level. Second, Jesus is Lord over your eternity. He determines where you end up. You don't determine where you end up. He determines whether you are square with Him or not, not you determining whether you are square with Him or not. Your conscience is not the final say as to whether you're going to heaven. Jesus is. That's this text. Get that down. That's an important soundbite to have hit you. Your conscience is not your Supreme Court. In terms of whether you're going to heaven. In the South, where I was from, uh, for you know, years and years of my life, people used to say, well, if you ever question their salvation or ask them about their salvation or whatever, people would brusquely come back at you and they they smile and go, I know I'm saved. I'm good. Back off. You know That kind of attitude is what has to be shattered if you were involved in this kind of sin with an unrepentant heart. You have to submit those two areas to apply this brake pedal and to apply your other, bring your foot over to the gas pedal of this text that says this is what you need to do about your sin. It's what gets to the heart. Lord, you're Lord over my imagination and you are Lord over my eternal destiny. Those are realities. Those are truths. I'm not saying we doubt the Security of our salvation theologically, but we are at the same time supposed to, knowing that truth, constantly examine ourselves to see if we're in the faith, right? That's what this text is calling for us to do. All right, so if you're taking a submission to Jesus' authority over over two dramatic areas. That's what we're doing. We're submitting to two dramatic areas that Jesus has lordship over. Number one, he's lord over our imagination. That's the first two verses, 27 and 28 of our text. If you are submitted to his lordship, it should be a glad submission, a ready submission, a willing submission to his lordship In your life, He is Lord over your imagination, whether you're submitting or not, but we're called to do that. He has the authority to convict us of things and show us things that we wouldn't otherwise see. Verse 27 begins like all these six illustration applications do in this section of of Matthew 5, getting your arms around it. These are applications that are potent and powerful. He's talking about anger. We talked about that. He's talking about lust. He's talking about your marriage. He's talking about divorce. He's talking about oaths, promises that you keep or break, retaliation, loving your enemies, conflict resolution, your heart towards people that don't like you. I mean, all these things are very germane, but they're all applications of the Ten Commandments. On a spiritual level, in a New Testament sense, that's what's going on. We've talked a lot about that. It begins, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery, verse 27. But I say to you that everyone that looks at a woman with lustful intention has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Simple to say, the rabbis were making adultery superficial, making the law about adultery superficial. And Jesus is saying, you've heard it taught that way superficially, but I'm telling you there's a deeper issue that's going on inside your hearts. And Jesus is saying, and I know what's going on inside your heart. This is something that actually brings us to our knees, but at the same time gives us hope. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who go, I can't do this. I can't help myself. God, you have to help me. That's where the happiness comes. Joy comes in embracing grace. And God gets us to grace. Someone who's committed adultery externally, actually, then and now, if you don't believe God can give you grace to your heart issue and save you, and rescue you, and put your life back together, then you're left hopeless. God is taking things to a surgical level to say, look, we're not just going to make you feel better about something that's killing you inside. I'm going in, and I'm willing to take it out and put grace there as a bomb to get you through. Okay, that's what Jesus is doing with this text if you believe in this text thou shalt not commit adultery which is commandment seven of the decalogue and covetousness is commandment 10 it's kind of tying these two things together Um, if you just take those superficially and you say well I've never committed adultery I'd never cross that line I'd never do that so I'm good and then if you're really harboring this sin or acting the sin out in your heart but you're not doing it physically and you think that you're safe and you're not that's a horrible situation to be in. And so again, submitting and yielding to Jesus' Lordship over our imaginations is the key to applying the brake pedal and to finding the security of our salvation. That's what is going on here. Didn't come to abolish the law, verse 17. He came to fulfill it. He fulfills it ceremonially, he fulfills it prophetically. He is the point of all of the law, all of the Old Testament. He's the point of Scripture. But really what he's saying here on the deeper level is I came to fulfill it in your life, not just not obeying the law by doing it more and more as a rule book, um, rule keeping, rule keeper, more and more, but going deeper and deeper in terms of the intent of the law. So not more and more being task oriented with your spirituality that's going to get you nowhere but backwards and downwards but it's going deeper and deeper into Jesus intent of the law what does it mean for your life the law is like a big mirror that is held up and it reflects god's blinding holiness and glory like the sunshine into your soul so that you can look in yourself look at yourself and in the mirror, in view of God's holiness and say, this is what, how I do, do not measure up. This is where I'm failing and this is what I am not doing and what I need to be doing out of a heart that's motivated by grace. That's what the law is for. That's what God is doing, it, doing here. He's undoing a false sense of security and he's also undoing a false sense of hopelessness for the Christian. Saying there's a way forward. There's a way forward. We don't relax the law. Verse 19, whoever relaxes the law is the least in the kingdom. Relaxing the law is reducing the law to a book of do's and don'ts and and trying to do more and more to make yourself right with God. That turns the law into silly putty. It relaxes it instead of the law being grace in our lives to show us our sin, to show us our Savior, and to show us the way out by the grace of the gospel. That's what the law does. And we see this in Paul's life. He was the Pharisee of the Pharisees. He thought he had it all good. He was very self-justified before he became a Christian. And he says in Romans 7, according to his testimony, you might look there, verse 7, you shall not covet. Um, He's reflecting on commandment 10 of the Decalogue. And he said, what shall we say? That the law is sin by no means. Yet if, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. It's that mirror. For I would have not known what it is to covet if the law had not said you shall not covet but sin seizing an opportunity through the commandment produced in me all kinds of covetousness for apart from the law sin lies dead sins like a lethal you know black mamba snake that's laying there in the dirt that you can't see but it's in your heart ready to strike and kill you it's already killing you and what happens is as it's just laying there until you begin to examine yourself in view of the light of the law and it's exposed and something happens there. You want to kill it, but you go, man, I thought it was just one snake, but it's a full brood of snakes. I've got all kinds of wrong that's going on in my life and in my heart. The law in one sense exacerbates what's happening. In the Pilgrim's Progress, it's the picture of a lady who's in a room who's sweeping. And the more that she sweeps, the dust is all filling the room. And you start to cough. And so the more that you examine yourself in view of the law, it's kicking up all that's really there. And you go, man, it was a far worse situation than I ever thought it was. I thought it was dead. I thought I had this licked, but really it's live. It's live in verse nine. I was once, I once, I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to me To uh, prove to be death to me prove to kill me you want you want to be slain by the law so that you can say all I have is Christ all I have is grace gives you the way forward it's deepening the law if you've ever burned for someone other than your spouse you're guilty of breaking God's standard this is women to men this is men to women. This is epithemia. It's lustful intent. Epithemia is burning desire or passion. It's sinning against God and your spouse. Now, let me, let me give a couple qualifiers just to diffuse some things. We're not talking about just natural attraction to say someone looks beautiful. Beauty is not sin in and of itself. Anything good in, in this life can be corrupted and, and misused, but that's not what we're talking about. We're also not merely or solely talking about someone who is in deep seated perversion. What we're talking about is just lustful intent. It's covetousness. It's wanting what God forbids. It's also not isolated to men but women. Also, it applies to married and to single people, younger and older people. When you say, well, men are the ones that are referenced here. It's a man having lustful intent with a woman, but this is not meant to be a men's conference. Jesus, when he preached this sermon, was not just preaching to a male crowd. It was gathering disciples, all the followers, and then there were believers and unbelievers in the setting. You say, well, the men, they struggle in this way more than women because of the eye gate, and that's how they're charged. Well, women will readily listen to things in the ear gate. And you know that if adultery is committed between a man and a woman, a woman was involved. And women will listen to men and their promises and lies and promising security and success and and help and comfort. And women can be seduced in that way and fall prey to this same sin. It's everyone and hearts that are applied here. But don't forget there's also the Proverbs 6 and 7 woman who is bold and cavalier and is acting out as if she's in the role of the man and leading men astray down into the slaughterhouse of fornication, adultery, and immorality. Romans 1 talks about how in a culture like ours that has become androgenized, people are exchanging their natural desires and this sin is fomenting and pervasive. So what does Jesus do? Well, he focuses on the heart. The turf war is found in the heart, What you allow your heart to feed on and what you allow your heart to latch onto. So we're not just talking about people who are completely gone in their thinking, reprobate in terms of how the world would grade people. We're talking about Jesus being Lord over our imaginations. We have to submit to him in this. We're not trying to solve culture We're not trying to say something can be fixed culturally in this. What we're trying to do is see the conviction of a word like this. Remember, Jesus said if you've done this in your heart, then you've committed adultery. Verse 28, already, already. What does all this mean? Well, if you committed adultery in the Old Covenant, Old Testament system, you would be killed. You'd be stoned. Leviticus 20.10 says if man commits adultery with a woman and a wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. The law is very practical here. It's talking about people that live close to you, people that are part of your regular ways and means of life. This is where adultery happens. It's where you're connecting with people like a neighbor if you do that, both of you are going to be killed. Deuteronomy twenty two, twenty two, if a man is found lying with his wife, with the wife of another man, both of them shall die. It says, so you shall purge the evil from Israel. Leviticus twenty, verse thirteen. If a man lies with a male, this is the sin of homosexuality, as with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination, they shall surely be put to death, their blood is upon them. Proverbs 6.32, he who commits adultery lacks sense. He who does it destroys himself. Where you go, look, the law's punishment doesn't apply in that way, so we're off scot-free, right? We're good to go. We're Americans. We're not under the Israeli theological or theonomical system, especially under the old covenant, where it would be applied in this way. So we're good. Well, what Jesus does, just as he goes deeper and deeper in terms of the intentions of the heart and the imaginations of the mind, he also raises the standard higher and higher by talking in terms of eternity. The penalty is not being killed in this life. That would be be being let off easy. This is being thrown into hell bodily, physically. Your resurrection body that's fit for eternity. Either goes to heaven or hell forever. And that's what Jesus is talking about. Jesus preached on hell more than any other theme in all of his preaching ministry. And this is the brake pedal against sin. Paul in 1 Corinthians 6, 9 said, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Listen to the list here. 1 Corinthians 6, 9, neither is sexually immoral nor idolaters, which is covetousness, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality. They're not going to the kingdom of God. Revelation 21.8. This is at the end. The cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, these are unbelievers, those who are not overcoming to the end. It says for the murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, those who are involved, again, in witchcraft and things, idolaters and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Again, resurrection, death, Where you're you're put in the lake of fire. Hell is foreboding. Hell is harrowing. Hell is disturbing. Hell is upsetting. But it's meant to drive someone to go, I need the grace of God. Listen, if you need accountability, come see me. Come see someone. Get with someone in the body of Christ and talk about this. Find someone. Trust someone. Deal with this. Why? Because the implications of not dealing with this are eternal. There's just certain things that need to hit the high end of the priority list. Deal with your lust. That's what the Bible is saying. It's what Jesus is saying. Gotta do it. Because if you're in this category of unrepentant lust, your soul could be in jeopardy. You could find out you're not really a believer. But you can be forgiven. The list here, uh, the list that are given of these categories of sins, by the way, give grace because if you are an unrepentant liar, if you're an unrepentant adulterer, if you're an unrepentant practicer, you know, someone practicing witchcraft, if you're unrepentant in any category, then the issue is the same. The answer is the same, though: repentance, turning from sin, trusting in the grace of the gospel. And being free from this sin so you can go to heaven doesn't mean that you're going to conquer it all in this life. But the repentant heart says, I want to conquer it. I want to mortify this sin. I want to say no to my flesh. Think about it. If you're ensnared in that sin, use your imagination for a second to say, what would life be like if I turned off that sin in my life and my heart? And turned on the freedom of walking in the grace of the gospel. Think about that. You walk in this life in one of two manners. Either guilt-ridden, hiding, in secrecy. Oh, what if that person really knew? Versus, I know I'm right with God. And I'm clean. And I'm walking in the power of the Holy Spirit. I'm not perfect, but I'm, I'm fighting my flesh. And I'm repenting. And I'm accountable to people in the body of Christ. And I'm growing in grace. Two different modes One is shackled and and discouraged and questioning whether or not you're really going to heaven at all. The other is I'm on the path of purity, holiness, being like Christ, not perfect, but forgiven and knowing where I'm going. That's what this text does. It's a crossroads text. People lie to themselves. The heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. Who can know it? They go, look, I'm not really that bad off. And if I measure myself against that person, I'm really okay. Jesus is just calling it out. First John 1 John 1.8, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, we lie to ourselves, and the truth is not in us. We're not really Christians if we just live a life of self-deception. First John 1 John 1.10, if we say we've not sinned, I've never done this, I'm not really that bad. It says we make him a liar and his word is not in us. We're actually, by ignoring a text like this and ignoring the possibility that we could be self-deceived. We're actually saying, God, you're a liar about what you're saying about me. <laughs> it's not really true. You're a liar. First John 1, 9, right in between these two verses, 1, 8 and 1, 9, is if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Confession is the word hama Geo. Hama meaning same, legeo meaning speak. You are saying the same thing that God already knows to be true that's going on in your heart all the time already. That's confession. That's the path out. You're not going to be perfect. You're not going to lick this sin overnight. But you can confess right now in your heart. Lord, I'm undone. You got me. It's real. It's killing me. It's hurting my friends. It's hurting my family. It's, they don't know, but they know. Right? It's breaking trust. I'm not clean and, and strong at work because of something I'm doing at work. God, forgive me. The finger of god 's convicting holy Spirit can rest on your life right now, and this is to men and to women, where you go i 'm done i 'm saying the same thing to you in my heart that you already know to be true, and i 'm embracing your grace and forgiveness for that sin. First John 1 nine it 's an ongoing confession, confessing reality in your life as a believer he 's lord over our imaginations. I'm going to dip my toe into point two, and we'll finish it next week. But it's the second area that he has lordship is your eternity. He's lord over your eternity. Again, it's recognizing this truth. Again, you're not the Supreme Court system over your own destiny. God is. So you have to say, you have absolute, complete authority over my life and over my destiny future, where I will end up. This is applying hell's brake pedal to a full stop of lustful intent. And it's what begins to move your foot off the brakes and onto the accelerator to say, what will repentance look like in my life? What will it look like for me to spiritually, metaphorically speaking, change what I look at? I'm gouging out my eye. I'm changing where I'll go. There's a cross-reference passage we'll pick up on next time in Mark, where it says, not just cut your arm off, but cut your foot off, which talks about where I am willing to go or not go, what I'm willing to touch and reach out for or not reach out for. Cut off your hand, cut off your foot, gouge out your eye, saying, Lord, you really own my eternity. The two points tie together the reality of Jesus knowing everything that's going on inside of you as if he's right there. And then also he's adjudicating his rule from the throne of heaven. That's what's tied together. He's the master of your imagination. He's the master of your destiny. He's adjudicating his rule from the throne of heaven. Matthew seven twenty one says this. This is a... Um, A portion of the Sermon on the Mount as well. It says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, I will enter the kingdom, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father. That means someone who's repentant, does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. What does that mean? That means that we can prop ourselves up with our own imaginations, believing that because we are involved in ministry, hey, this person here that's standing before Jesus is saying, I've cast out demons. Surely I know you. Surely I'm right with God. Surely I'm blessed because look at the, the, the impact of my ministry. That person had a demon in them and I got rid of it. So I must be just fine. Jesus is saying... No, you have to deal with him on the deepest level of your own heart intentions. That's what he's calling for. That's what it means to know Christ, to really be honest. That's what it means to really know anyone, to really, truly be gut level honest with that person in complete transparency. That's what Jesus is calling for in a genuine relationship. Those who are left up in superficiality, well, I'm a demon caster, you know, I, I'm an exorcist, I, I, I'm a a prophet. I've prophesied in your name. These things are what I'm propping up my future on. This is what's giving me the assurance of my eternal destiny. I cast out demons and I predict things in the name of Jesus. And these predictions and these outcomes are giving me reassurance that I'm fine. You say, I go to church, I give money, I've got Christian friends, I'm not as bad as that person. All these things are being propped up on popsicle sticks that he's just going to knock down in the end. That's what this text is doing. Again, we have to come up and touch the stove of hell to be reminded that it's real and it's a threat. It's a warning. I remember when I was uh, 35 years old, a long time ago, in a galaxy far, far away, In Little Rock, Arkansas, I was driving down a old country road and I was on the phone with my wife who was about a mile or two down the street at Starbucks. And she had our oldest three who were children or babies at that point, you know, younger than like seven, five or four and one or two. So it was my older three were younger She had the white minivan. And I'm just on the phone talking along and I saw a Mack truck, a dump truck that was getting ready to make a left-hand turn. And it was you know, in, in between a green belt. So you have kind of wooded area and, and it's a truck there going to a loading or dumping zone. And I'm driving along and the truck had enough time and it went out in front of me and I'm just cruising along at 45 miles an hour or whatever. And there was a truck that followed it or was behind it and it stopped. And I made the wrong assumption that it was going to stay stopped. Probably looked away for a second, looked back and the truck is right in front of me. And so the old phrase, man, I got hit by a Mack truck. Well, I actually hit a Mack truck. So I screeched the brakes, slammed the brakes as hard as I could. Wheels are spinning, rubber's burning. And, um, and I'm going as fast as I was going before while hitting the brakes. So my brake pedal was not working. My tires were not strong enough to grip the road. And I'm going into this truck Judy's on the other line hearing the whole thing and I'm thinking to myself this thought and I talked about thin slicing with your mind last week how you can see things in a crisis and remember things in nanoseconds. I'm thinking I'm going to die. Like for sure this is it. And then I had one more thought before impact. What a bummer way to go. (laughs) Like what a waste. You know, here I am. So the Lord directed the impact to the gas tank on the side of the truck, which sounds like a really horrible thing. But unless you're watching you know, a cop show, the car didn't blow up um, or the truck, but actually the gas tank crumpled in impact and I caromed off of it and spun around the other way. The airbag deployed, I was set up straight, and suddenly I'm looking as the smoke and rubber is all like kind of dissipating at this older couple that's sitting with me because I had spun around a 180, and we're face-to-face, and the couple in front of me is like this. <laughs> and so I looked at myself and, and realized I'm alive. Like I'm, by and large, unharmed, and got out of the car and threw my arms straight up in the air and went, praise the Lord, I'm alive! And I thought... Oh my goodness, I need to tell Judy I'm okay. So I like dig for my phone and tell her and I like hug the driver. I mean, I, I was just glad to be alive. Um, it was ruled his fault. But anyway, that's beside the point. I was thankful. The point of that whole thing is that, is that uh, you come face to face with the ultimate moment where you think you're going into eternity. And what does that mean for how you live your life? That's what Jesus is doing. He's bringing you right up to the moment of the end. It's interesting. The fire trucks came, the hazmat, you know, all the different rescue vehicles. Judy was just a mile away, so she shows up in the van with the kids, and and there were trucks and rubble and everything was around. And Logan got himself out of his car seat and made it over to me to hug dad. And uh, Riley was um, in, the, in the car still, and she was seeing all the firemen and different people. And she looked at mom and said, this is the best day of my life. Look at all this. This is incredible. Well, as we look at our days going into 2021, I want to encourage you, deal with this sin. Deal with this issue. We're going to look at it in detail, verses 29 and 30, what you actually can do and not do. What does it look like to deal with this sin going into this new year? Next time.